You may be seated. Now, don't be seated. I'm sorry. I get confused. I'm a confused man. I want you to stand, and I want to, to read with you from Paul's letter to the Romans again. This is what um, God's people have done for ages. That's why we do it here. If you want a text for it, it's Nehemiah. But I want to look again at Romans chapter 1. We're continuing to make our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. We're looking particularly at these verses of chapter 1. Um, and they concern these verses, the particular verses we're looking at, they concern the wrath of God. Boy, uh, what a difficult thing to have to deal with, the wrath of God. Let me just remind you, before we read this passage, um, of a couple of things. In this first section of Paul's letter, he's giving the bad news against which we understand the good news. It's, it's the backdrop. It's the background. It's why the good news becomes so supremely good, so unbelievably good. Um, in this first section, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 20, or through verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul is making this argument that sin is a universal thing, and it's a pervasive thing. It's, it's both of these things, universal um, and pervasive. And as we read through this, you'll hear Paul referring to sin, touching every aspect of who we are as human beings. So listen for it. Listen for it as we read this passage in a minute. He, he will say that our minds are affected. He will say that our hearts are affected. He will say that our wills are affected. The totality of who we are is affected by sin. So it touches everybody. There's nobody who escapes it. Uh, this is the worst kind of swine flu that you could ever imagine. Uh, and it, it's universal. It goes everywhere, and it goes to the deepest parts of us. This is what makes it such a huge problem. But that leads to this second thing. As, as we're thinking about this, as we're trying to come to terms with what Paul is saying here about the wrath of God, let's not lose sight of the gospel. Now, Paul has said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is his way of saying, I love the gospel. I love the good news. Uh, I can't wait to come to Rome to preach the gospel to you, the good news to you. He loves it. He's not ashamed of it. It has liberated him. It has set him free. It has given him hope. And he can't wait to talk with people about it, preach it, communicate it one-on-one, face-to-face, in large groups, wherever. And why is that? The reason he can't wait to talk about the gospel, preach the gospel, is because the gospel is essentially this. The long-awaited son has come. The long-awaited redeemer, deliverer, king has come. And when he comes, he comes to put things right. Everything. And where does he start? He starts with you and me. keep referring to this book by Ed Welch. It just pops into my head right now. This book that we've had available called Running Scared. And in the book, this last chapter that we just dealt with this last week at the refuge, this most recent chapter, 26, I think it is, Ed Welch makes this observation that when we're asked the question, what is wrong with the world? My answer is never, I am. I am what is wrong with the world. The answer is always somebody else is what's wrong with the world. 
You see, Paul, and I, I want to say this carefully and tenderly, Paul wants to start with us because we, from the time of Adam, for the, from the first rebellion of Adam and Eve, we have been what is wrong with the world. And so when the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, comes into the world, he deals with the biggest problem in the world, and that is you and me. And he comes to put things right. And the first thing that he puts right is us in relationship to him. That's where he starts. Another way of putting this is that God takes it upon himself to deal with my problem. He takes it upon himself to deal with my problem fully at infinite cost to himself and at no cost to me. He takes it upon himself to take care of my problem. That's why John Newton wrote the hymn, This is an Interesting Grace. <laughs> no. What, what kind of grace is it? It's an amazing grace. It's a dazzling grace. So am I amazed? Do I stand in wonder and awe at this amazing, long-suffering, patience, kindness, love, mercy, grace of God? That's what we want to have in mind as we read this and as we wrestle with this issue of the wrath of God. So read with me, if you would, at chapter 1, verse 16, and then into verse 18. I've, I've listed the whole text for you in the bulletin, but I'm just going to read through verse 23 because we need to get at this. So read with me. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That is from beginning to end. It is all a matter of faith received by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. He's left his fingerprints all over everything. That's what he's saying. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, empty, in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. God help us understand his word. Let's pray. Lord, um, we do need your help. Please grant it to us by your spirit as we consider these words of life as all of your words are, these words of life. Give us grace to hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated now. They used to stand all day. Some of you know that, so you're getting off easy. We're asking four questions about this. We looked at two of the questions last week. The four questions are this, this wrath of God, what is it? Number one, what is it? Where is it revealed? Number two, how is it revealed? And then why is it revealed? And the answer to the last two questions, how is it revealed and why is it revealed, are sort of woven together like a rope, if you will, 
as we look at this passage uh, today. Again, we've, we've given a definition of wrath. What is it? Let me just remind you, it is not what we see in one another. It is not an outburst of anger. It is not an emotional eruption. John Murray's definition is a good one. It is the holy revulsion of God's entire being against everything that is contrary to his holy character. It is the holy revulsion of his soul against everything that is contrary to his holy character. Charles Hodge attaches this little interesting little phrase to it. Wrath, rather than being an emotional outburst, is the calm and undeviating purpose of the divine mind. Calm and undeviating. The wrath of God, God who is infinitely holy, who is right and righteous, is simply his judgment against sin, against everything that is wrong, everything that is not right. So that is what wrath is, just by way of quick review. And where is it revealed? We talked about this, spent quite a lot of time on it last week. Where is it revealed? It is revealed against all ungodliness, which is to say godlessness. And that's important. You know, language can get in the way sometimes. We have to have language in order to communicate. We need words. We can't do so well without words. Uh, We can use body motions and facial expressions and other things, but we need words, but words can get in the way. We tend to think of, of uh, ungodliness as immorality. But let's remember, this is a great and much better word. Ungodliness is really godlessness. Ungodliness is wherever God has been removed from consideration and false gods erected in his place, whether it's the God of self or the God of money or the God of power or the God of sex, whatever it might be. Godlessness is removing God from the equation. That is ungodliness. My wife observed on, the, on our way home from church last week, you know, it was one of those aha moments. She said, she said, so very, very moral people can be godless and so unrighteous. Bingo. Bingo. Wherever the one true God has been removed from consideration, that is ungodliness, and it leads to an unrighteous life, which is to say a not right life. A not right life. And very upstanding and moral people, self-righteous people, can be godless. And, and the remarkable, stunning, frightening thing is that you can find them in the church. And I know. Because I are one. I want to recommend a book to you that I just have read over this weekend. It's a book called The Prodigal God, a book by Tim Keller. It's short. It's rather expensive. I don't understand publishing and how it works. But let me tell you, it's worth the price of admission. And what Keller does in that little book is simply do an exposition of the parable of the prodigal son in showing us that this prodigiously lavish and gracious God who is so lavish in his forgiveness of extremely immoral sinners 
when he does that, finds that people who have erected a morality in the place of the one true God, a theology in the place of the one true God, become angered at the Father who is so lavish in his forgiveness. Rather than celebrating and rejoicing in the return of the Son, the elder brother is furious with the Father. He looks righteous. He looks religious. But he is every bit as God-less and so unrighteous as is his profligate younger brother. It's a challenging little book. The point is simply that there are different kinds of unright ways of living that grow out of a removal of the one true God as the center of all of life and the one who is to be worshipped and adored and delighted in and praised. So that is what wrath is. It is this response of God. It is the execution of his judgment against sin. And it is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men, whatever form they might take. Now, how is it being revealed? How is this wrath of God being revealed? Well, this text tells us, and basically, if I could summarize it, I would summarize it in this way. I would summarize it by saying that the great tragedy of sin, the great tragedy that sin is, is that sin produces greater sin, which produces greater misery. Sin produces greater sin, and that sin leads to greater misery. You see this? in the text. You see this in what Paul writes through this first chapter. This is how it works. And this is extremely challenging, folks. And I, uh, if you're newer to Christ the King, I just, I need to ask you to believe me when I say this, okay? I'm, I'm not a preacher who stands up here preaching about things that I've figured out to people who haven't yet figured them out. I'm not up here as somebody who is righteous, who is preaching to the people who are unrighteous, who is at a place different from the place where you find yourselves. I'm one sinner who has found bread simply seeking to help other sinners find bread. I'm one sinner who, by God's grace, has had his own chest opened up, has had his own heart exposed, and who has begun to find the refreshment, the renewal, the transformation that comes in Jesus Christ. I'm simply one who is called to stand before you and tell you this is where the the life is to be found. This is where the refreshment, the restoration is to be found. This is where the hope is to be found. Please believe me when I say this to you. And this is how it works, and I've seen it in my own heart. This is how this progressive, degenerative thing about sin leading to greater misery works. Verse 18, wrath is revealed in the first place where truth about God is suppressed. That is why wrath is revealed And that is where wrath begins to be revealed. It starts with the removal of the true God from the equation. But it leads to a condition of the heart. Look at verse 21. It begins, verse 18, with those who suppress the truth. Even though, as we said last week, everything that you can know about God as the creator, 
Maybe not everything in some exhaustive sense, but certainly things like his eternal power and his divine attributes, those things that Paul mentions here, these things can be known through what he has made. But the truth about God, because it is so imposing and so threatening, is suppressed. It is held down in unrighteousness. And that holding down of the truth, that suppression of the truth that is evident, that is present all around us about the fact that God exists and about the fact that God is a particular kind of God leads to a condition of the heart. Look at verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Something happens to your heart when you suppress the truth about God. As threatening and as imposing as it is, as big as God is and as small as you are, as righteous as he is and as unrighteous as we all are, to reject God does something to my heart. text says I become foolish. I become futile in my thinking and I become foolish. Foolishness is not stupidity, my dear friends. Foolishness is not a lack of intelligence. Foolishness is what happens in the heart when the truth about God is suppressed and he is rejected as the significant X factor in all of life. And so everyone becomes a kind of Donald Trump. Everyone becomes the Donald. You know, they refuse to give thanks. I mean, I, I, I don't, I've never met Donald Trump. I know somebody who has met Donald Trump knows the Donald. But you get what's going on with the Donald, don't you? I mean, you, you've, you've seen it. You've, you've seen it on the, the apprentice. I mean, you've seen the arrogance. You've seen the pride. You've, you've seen the self-reliance. You've seen, frankly, the self-absorption. What is at the center of the Donald's life? The Donald. Somebody, you know, a long time ago, probably a child, observed that sin is a three-letter word and the word in the center of sin is the letter I. <laughs> it's the letter I. The word which is in the center of the word is actually a letter, the letter I. That's what you see when you see the Donald. I mean, it's like the Donald. The Donald has this view of reality in which he was wise enough, smart enough, capable enough to have been born of particular parents, to have been born in a particular place at a particular time with circumstances so converging, he was smart enough to create his own existence. Do you get, you know what I mean? It's like, I I play golf. I love golf. I, I love to watch golf, frankly. I've watched enough golf to know that Tiger Woods is on a first-name basis with the God of heaven and earth. And he speaks very freely, both to the Father and to the Son. And it is terrifying to me, simply terrifying, that the God of heaven and earth, who is really there, simply terrifying to me to contemplate that Tiger Woods one day 
will stand before that God. And he will stand before that God either clothed in the righteousness of Christ where he will be amazed and stunned that the God of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ could extend to him such extraordinary, unbelievable, and amazing grace, or he will stand before that God who is really there, infinite, eternal, and unchanging, perfect in righteousness and holiness, and will account before that God for every vile abuse that he has directed toward the God of heaven and earth. And Tiger Woods seems to be like the Donald. He seems to have this view of reality that he was smart enough, wise enough to have considered where he might be born, to be considered that he would be born with the same temperament, the same gifts, the same kinds of abilities, would so construct his own life that he would not have to give thanks to the one true God who is really there, but rather could complain against the one true God who is really there because his eight iron was buffeted by a bit of wind and ended up buried in a bunker rather than next to the pin. Rather than give thanks, the complaints are registered against the goodness, the sovereignty, the wisdom, the perfection of Almighty God. Now look, I'm not preaching to Tiger Woods. I'm preaching to myself. I'm preaching to myself. It's in my heart too. This tendency to remove God as the central consideration in all of life. And in doing that, failing to acknowledge him as good and gracious and kind and merciful, the creator God, thinking that life should work differently for me because I deserve it. It's a whole lot of things flowing together there. But basically, what happens to the heart that does not honor God is the Frank Sinatra syndrome. It's all about me. I did it my way. I'm the author of my own destiny, accountable to no one. That's what happens to the heart. And so having removed God from the equation, having become thankless, their hearts being darkened. They are now, Paul says, in successive paragraphs, given up, given over to what is in their hearts. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. He gave them up. Three times the apostle says this. The progression continues. The digression continues. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. He gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up. So that by the end of the passage, by these last verses that we read a couple of weeks ago, there has emerged the total disintegration of human society, the total distortion of all that is natural, of all that is natural. Dostoevsky, you know, the great Russian novelist, Dostoevsky pinned the tail to the donkey when he said, if there is no God, meaning if God is removed from the equation, the infinite personal God who is really there, If there is no God, 
anything is permitted. Anything is permitted. And what you see in this passage really uh, is a couple of things. You see God active, active in the execution of his judgment. You see God repeatedly giving them up, giving them up, giving them up. Verse 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. What you need to know is that that verb is in the passive voice. The verb is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. And what that suggests is that there is an active person who is behind the revelation of this wrath. The wrath doesn't act in a sort of quid pro quo or cause effect sort of way. It's, it's not simply something that is built into the nature of things, although it is built into the nature of things. If I turn away from life, what inevitably comes is death. That's built into the nature of things. If I turn away from joy, the source of joy, what I will find is misery. That's built into the nature of things. It's the nature of reality. Sometimes when I'm doing pastoral counseling with folks and and they come to me and they tell me that they're in trouble and that they're miserable and that they're depressed, I have to tell you, one of the first questions I ask them is, what's going on in your life? And I don't do it to be mean. I don't do it to be mean. I I do it as a physician. I do it as a soul doctor. That's what I am. I'm a soul doctor. may not be a very good one, but that's what I want to be. I want to treat souls. I want to treat hearts. And to treat souls, to treat hearts, you have to diagnose. You've got to look into the heart. You've got to ask questions about the heart. You've got to ask people, what are you doing with your life? And if what you are doing with your life is away from the source of life, away from the source of joy, if what you are doing is contrary to what he has revealed to be right and true and good, in other words, if you're engaged in disobedience, you should not be surprised that you're depressed. There may be other reasons. I'm not suggesting that there can't be other reasons. There certainly can. But in my role as a pastor, a soul doctor, one of the first questions I want to ask people is, what are you doing? What are you doing? There may be other factors. But I will tell you this in my experience as a pastor across 30 plus years of ministry. Many, 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 many instances of depression are precipitated by seeking to live life against the flow of life. Against the way God has ordered things. And you should be glad for that. You should be very glad for that. It's like when you cut your finger on a rusty nail. If there were no pain, you wouldn't know that you're running the risk of an infection which could lead to the amputation of your finger. But there is more to this than simply reality and flowing against reality. There is God's active involvement in it. The wrath of God is being revealed. God is the active agent behind this wrath that is being revealed. And what God is doing 
as he reveals his wrath as the active agent, what he is doing is removing restraints. He is removing restraints. He is removing his restraining hand. He is letting go. And he's doing it actively. God is rejected. Thanklessness emerges. Foolishness takes hold of the heart. And God's active response is to say, you wish to live life apart from me. I give you over to what it is that you wish for. I give you over to it. Actively, I release you. I let you go. There's this little proverbial saying you hear me hear sometimes. Somebody has said, when the gods want to curse a man, they give him what he wants. When the gods want to curse a man, they give him what he wants. That is God's active involvement in this. It is God withdrawing his restraints withdrawing his restraining hand and again saying, if you want to live life apart from me, I will give you over increasingly to what you want. It's illustrated, I think, in the way we sometimes have to deal with our children, isn't it? It's painful. It's excruciating. And you've got to understand, my dear friends, that while on the one hand... God is never reticent about his judgments. He is never reluctant about his judgments. He is never hesitant about his judgments or about the ways that he does things. You must understand, on the other hand, that when God lets us go, it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. It was Jesus, the incarnate God, who sat on the Mount of Olives looking over the city of Jerusalem and wept over the city of Jerusalem. His heart was broken, and he is the one who is about to enter into the city of Jerusalem to be put to death by the city of Jerusalem, and he wept at their unbelief. I frankly don't know quite how you put those two things together. God's, God's, be careful, God's gladness in his judgments He never regrets his judgments. He always does what is right. And yet his heart is always broken. Always broken as Jesus' heart was broken, weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And so from God's perspective, that's that's what happens. It is God who is the Lord of heaven and earth, God who is righteous in all of his dealings, who responds to us when we reject him, when we are thankless, when we are foolish, when foolishness takes hold in our hearts. His response is to say, you would seek life apart from me. I give you over to it. Increasingly, I give you over to it. Here's what it looks like from our perspective. And again, as a pastor, as a pastor, I've had to witness this in my own office, in my own study. As this process begins to take hold, as people exclude God from consideration, move him to the periphery and beyond, as thanklessness begins to characterize their lives, as foolishness grips their hearts, and this progression begins to unfold, 
people will say, I never intended to end up where I am. I never intended to end up where I am. What person with an addiction to pornography or an addiction to social status or an addiction to gambling, an addiction to money, an addiction to moral self-righteousness. And there are people who are addicted to status, addicted to moral self-righteousness. What person who is an addict sets out to be an addict? It is a precipitous in one sense, and yet gradual in another sense, decline. I wonder if Bernard Madoff, or Madoff, Madoff with millions, I wonder if Bernard Madoff, at the beginning of his career, said, I want to get to the place where I am incapable of managing my life anymore. I want to construct an investment system in which I use the funds entrusted to me by one client to pay the investment returns of another client. And I want to do this time and time and time again so that it appears that my investments, those that I manage, are worth 30 to $40 billion. I want to do this so that I can own boats and planes and homes in New York and Miami in Europe. But in fact, it will be a house of cards. There will be no money. And I will do this so that the day will come when it will all collapse. I read that because I wanted to make sure I got it right. I sub- I, I, did Bernie Madoff start out that way? Of course not. Of course not. The day came when a promised return wasn't there for him to pay to a particular investor, and so he borrowed some money from another investor and made good on his promise to the first investor. And guess what? It worked out okay, and he didn't get caught, and nobody was hurt. But then the returns weren't coming quite as he had expected and predicted. And so he did it again and again and again and again. And you understand how this goes. Here's, here's the little poem, the little reminder for you. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. It happens gradually. And Bernie Madoff decided that he wanted to live apart from God, became thankless, and gradually was seduced and succumbed to his own avarice and greed, and God gave him over to it. The proud, the self-righteous. Do the proud and self-righteous set out to become arrogant, proud, and condescending? Do they set out to say, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men? I thank you that we are not like other sinners. That's the unrighteousness of the Pharisees. And it's an unrighteousness that is gradual, insidious. And it rips at the heart and soul and core of the gospel. And we end up saying, they are the problem, 
those people out there, those people with the bad theology, those liberals, those gay, lesbian, homosexual, bisexual, liberal people living in places like New York, they're the problem. They're the problem. I just would encourage you to look again at verses 29 to 31. And again, folks, I'm trying to be honest here, honest with myself, honest with my own heart, honest with our hearts. I'll just have you look at verses 29 to 31 again. Some of the things that characterize this unrighteousness, haughtiness, covetousness, envies, gossips, boastful people. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that inside my own skin lives one of the most haughty, covetous, envious gossips I know. It breaks my heart that in the church of Jesus Christ, Self-righteous Pharisees who beneath the surface of their self-righteousness are haughty and covetous, envious, gossipy, boastful people. It breaks my heart that people outside the church will say, why should I go 